This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod with 36 deaths and thousands more forced to evacuate, We'll have the latest on the Maui fires as Canadians flee Hawaii. And Science World's dome lights return to the Vancouver skyline tonight thanks to a $10 million upgrade. Its CEO Tracy Reddys joins us. And East Side Story, Growing Up at the PNE. Author Nick Marino joins us to discuss his new book and share his memories of working six summers at Vancouver's Summer Fair. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Well, the death toll rose dramatically overnight on highways, uh, Hawaii's island of Maui, where a fast-moving wild, wildfire nearly destroyed the historic town of Lahaina. The wildfire killed at least 36 people and damaged or destroyed more than 270 structures. Now, officials have warned that the death toll could rise with multiple fires on the island still burning, and teams are spreading out to search uh, charred areas. Now, evacuations uh, continue today with officials saying buses would be provided to take people from the disaster area on the west part of the island to a shelter to uh, Maui's main airport. Now, when news originally broke about the wildfires, several flights between Vancouver and Maui uh, were cancelled. Airlines with flights in and out of Maui have uh, triggered their flexible change policy in the wake of the emergency. In a post dated today, Air Canada is advising those at the uh, Kolai Airport, the main airport there, um, the passengers there, that um, that they have revised their ticketing policy to make it easier for those traveling on uh, on any affected flight to make changes to their booking without penalty, uh, space permitting. So um, there is some flexible, uh, flexible ticketing policy uh, that Air Canada has announced. They also said that last night Air Canada operated an evening flight with a larger aircraft, the 290, 298-seat Dreamliner. Uh, they usually fly the 169-seat uh, uh, Boeing 737. The Dreamliner was full when it returned, and we'll hear from some of those passengers as they arrived at uh, Vancouver International Airport this morning. But first, let's speak to Brad DeSalniers. He is a Vancouverite who spends a lot of time each year in Maui. He joins us from the island today. Brad, thank you for, thank you for speaking to us today. Well, it's good to be here, Jazz. Thank you. So uh, tell me, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? So I am in Kihei, which is south uh, on the southern part, southwestern part of the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fires in Lahaina are on the northwestern edge of the island. And Lahaina, which is a very, very significant historical site uh, and a big tourist location, uh, is gone does not exist any longer. Um, We had a a combination of weather patterns that drove really high winds up over the mountaintops and down into Lahaina around, I heard about 80 80 miles an hour winds going down there, Mm -hmm. and I guess knocked over some electrical poles and sparked, and the entire town of Lahaina uh, is now completely burned to the ground. Uh, thousands, thousands of people, um, uh, businesses, the history of Lahaina is irreplaceable. Uh, Lahaina was the, um, was the original capital of the Hawaiian islands when they were first 
consolidated under one of the early kings in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big whaling town all the way through the 1800s, 19th century. Uh, so the buildings there are, you know, 100 plus years old. Uh, so historically, it's uh, it's a an immense loss. Uh, you know, from a human point of view, people's lives and livelihoods uh, have been destroyed. Um, they're reporting 36 dead now. I think that number will probably climb. People had very little time to react, like minutes to react. Hmm. Um, people were diving into the ocean to escape the flames. Uh, you know, it's been described as a hellscape on Earth. Hmm. Uh, so it was very, very fast, and and all of the structures in that area are old wood structures, and it's it, it's gone. So it's it's a horrible tragedy, um, human tragedy, historical loss, and and really a big spiritual loss for the islands. Um, Lahaina was a very spiritual center for many, many people. Uh, I so, guess today, and you can feel it. Yeah, and I guess today, with you've done a wonderful job describing the importance of Lahaina. Uh, I guess today is just sort of uh, dealing with all of that, isn't it? It's the immediate challenges of wildfire and and the impact on people, the needs, uh, their immediate needs in regards to shelter, and then of course the historical loss, as you say. It's all sort of everybody's trying to comprehend all of it. I think all just all together, all at once. Yeah, it's it's massive. Um, you know, good news is, I guess the, um, the federal disaster uh, zone was called this morning. Um, so I imagine FEMA will be in here pretty quickly from the humanitarian uh, point of view. There's still no cell coverage up in that area, so a lot of people don't actually know what's going on. And it wasn't the only area hit. Um, there was a pocket in the upcountry. Uh, and a very famous place called the Kula Lodge, as I understand it, is also gone. Um, uh, and so, the, you know, the good news is that, the, you know, the disaster recoveries can probably start now. But the fires, from what I can tell, from what I'm seeing, the fires have pretty much burnt themselves out. Mm-hmm. And so they're, you know, they're probably in there just putting out hot spots. And, but then, you know, they're going to have to search through all of that, and it's going to be, you know, it's, it's not going to be good. And you can feel it on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just feel that there's a, a sort of a shock um, and a sadness. Um, I imagine it'll lead to some gr- to grief. Um, but just talking to people, I'm a part-time resident here, and talking to, uh, you know, people here, that you know the work here that live here mm-hmm. um you can just sense it's just a really big big tragedy uh, when you think of hawaii you think of tropical storms uh you think of volcanoes um had the discussion around wildfires been part of that conversation in hawaii because when i think of hawaii the general assumption sometimes is volcanoes and other tropical storms but one doesn't always assume wildfires, let's say, compared to California or like British Columbia. Uh, Has has that been part of the conversation there before? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Maui in particular has uh, a lot of different temperate zones. Mm -hmm. So you can go from tropical rainforest, you know, bamboo forest to a desert in five minutes drive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are definitely pockets on Maui that are 
um, that are really, really dry. And it would seem since the sugar cane business closed down here, uh, when I guess 10 years ago, um, a lot of the fields have, have, you know, gone to sallow and, uh, and so there have been more and more wildfires here in the last several years. And they start as, you know, brush fires, sparks from a car, um, you know, any little thing. And it can, it can set off a wildfire. Two summers ago, we had a big wildfire sort of in the central area near us here in, in Kihei. And, you know, Oprah had to open up her private road to rescue all sorts of animals from the Maori Humane Society. So it's been happening, I think, more frequently in the last number of years, particularly since they shut down the cane production. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it is, I mean, there, it's a, it, there are dry, definitely dry places here and you definitely get a lot of wind. Um, and tourism is, is such an um, important part of the economy there. At this point, the governor is saying, asking tourists to stay away. Uh, do you have any sense of how long do you think the, the tourists will be asked to stay away, particularly from Canada, but all over the world, really? Uh, because I understand the need for tourists to stay away. At the same time, it is so, so vital for the local economy as well. Yeah, I think, it's, I think that's a few days. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't think that's going to last long. Lahaina, while it's a you know it's a huge tourist destination, is not by any means the only tourist destination here on Maui. There are a lot of other really great things to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the issue is they need to get uh, resources in, and they need to make sure that they've tamped down all the uh, all the hot spots, and then they've got to get in and do the search, which is not going to be pretty. Um, so I was actually planning to head back to Vancouver and I'm delaying my trip by a few days because I just don't want to add to the, the confusion at the airport because I think they're, they're trying to get a lot of resources in here really quickly. So my, I imagine that, you know, all of the resorts north of Lahaina, so uh, Kanapali um, and Napili, where all the big golf courses are, uh, and the big hotels are on the north end of the island weren't affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once they're able to get the highway back open, which I imagine shouldn't take more than a week, um, once they get that back open, then there's no reason people can't come and go up to those those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it just means Lahaina, which is you know probably you know two three miles two miles long and half mile wide. Um, that's gone. Brad, uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking time for uh, out for us today. I, I know it's a stressful day and a tough day for many people there. Uh, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, and thank you for uh, letting people know what's going on here. Still a great place to come, but it's a it's a tragic loss for the, for the world, frankly. Thank you. Thank you. Well, starting this evening, Vancouver's skyline will be looking a little different or perhaps returning back to what it used to look like. That's because Science World's dome is ready to dazzle again. For more on this, we're joined by Tracy Reddys, the CEO and president of Science World. Tracy, thank you for joining us. Oh, great to be here, Jeff. So walk me through here. Uh, we, the, you know, when you think of Vancouver, there are certain sort of landmarks that uh, really add to our skyline in the evening, especially in Science World's one of those, but your lights uh, at, at Science Worlds have been ha- have been off. I think since September of 2022. 
Yeah, it's almost a, almost a year now um, that we've been in this process of uh, replacing the lighting system, and it's been quite a quite an eventful process. I'm I'm sure for the community around us who've watched all the high riggers propelling off of about 800 meters of rope between them through uh, the year, taking out lights or taking down lights, and then installing the new ones. It's uh, provided hours of uh, interest, but we're really, really glad to be back. And this is a state-of-the-art lighting system that is really going to dazzle, as you said uh, just earlier. Um, Now, the actual refurbishment itself, I mean, Science World's been, for us, for all of us, so we remember it from Expo 86, uh, but like anything, it it does need a a little tender, loving care. Walk me through some of the challenges that uh, you as part of the executive team uh, had to to deal with and what exactly beyond lights you, you were actually dealing with in regards to refurbishing Science World. Well, it's it's a very good point, Jazz, because um, actually we're we're just really at the start of this refurbishment uh, process. We've have been um, doing a number of things for the last year since um, the federal government uh, gave uh, Science World ten, ten million dollars through the Pacific Can Tourism Relief Fund, and uh, and now we've got some support from the provincial government as well. But really, um, it's about a eighty million dollar revitalization effort over the next five years. And as you pointed out, Science World, the structure actually came into being in that, with Expo eighty six. Much of the structure was built to last only six months. We've made it last 35 years in good Canadian fashion, but <laughs> every, everything wears out at some point in time. So we've got, you know, we've been working on electrical systems. We're doing things to the visitor experience, the new lighting system uh, that uh, we're talking about. But there's also things like air conditioning um, and uh, other things that have to be fixed. And it's just like any other building, um, you know, it does need TLC. And, but the, the thing that's unique about this building is that it's uh, one of the largest geodesic domes in the world. So it makes things a little bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to fundraising, it's a challenge for any industry, uh, especially in a post-COVID environment. Uh, how, uh, how much of a challenge is that, hitting the $80 million mark? You've got obviously money uh, from the federal government to, to help with this. Uh, but in regards to the full 80 million uh are there significant challenges in raising that well i think for as you said all charities nowadays um it's it's more difficult um Mm -hmm. inflation people you know have less um less money to 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 spend so it's it's a challenge for all of us i think what we we have um we will be bringing to market our camp our new campaign in the fall um, to, again, raise money. We continue to speak to all levels of government about continuing support. This is, a, a, this is a, 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 not only an iconic building, it's the um, a, a pinnacle of, of or, or, or a very important component uh, of the education system throughout the province. And we all know that we have um, a shortage of STEAM talent today and looming, and so it's really important that uh, centers like Science uh, Science World can continue to do what they do and inspire the next generation of critical thinkers, wonder seekers, and, uh, and STEAM enthusiasts. I think so much, So often we sort of think of it, oh, it's a great place to send the kids uh, for the weekend or the evening, and it's a great day. Uh, but you're right. I mean, really, this is about also educating your kids and inspiring them uh, in regards to science and technology uh, and engineering. Uh, it, it's all part of that, isn't it? I mean, really driving sort of, you know, the next generation in regards to yeah. our economy and our education system. Well, it's something that, you know, we're really, really passionate about at Science World. We know this is critical to 
the province's future and um, and um, and and so important to um, the people of British Columbia too. I mean, it's important that we have those innovators and that talent here to to draw companies and to keep them here. Um, but also just, you know, the wider importance of STEAM literacy and, um, and critical thinking. And, and again, we, we are a, a pretty important cog in that whole education system. And, um, you know, we're, our new strategy is about uh, science for all because we, we really believe that, um, you know, the world does need more nerds. And, um, and, and again, uh, you know, we're looking at really important themes um, that I think are, are, you know, very important to British Columbia's future, things like regeneration of the planet, human health and inclusion. Um, so, you know, our, our programs um, are uh, really meant to sort of, again, inspire that next generation to really be the critical thinkers who help solve some of these uh, issues that are facing our planet. That is great. Now, getting back to the lights, uh, what time uh, is that event occurring? And I want to con- just want to confirm here: there'll be six hundred and six six hundred fifty-one LED lights, so three times as many lights as before, and, and there'll be you can program them for to, for yes. multiple colors and things of that. So, kind of like BC Place to a certain degree, a little different, obviously, but you're able yeah. to change colors as well, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll be able to program. Uh, we've got hundreds of programs for the lights, and we'll be able to, I think, continue to. Uh, build on those programs so it gives us a lot more um, flexibility and um, so we'll be as of about uh, 8 30 or so tonight it's uh, 8 30 45 we'll be uh, lighting up the dome uh, we'll be doing a bit of a 15 minute um, uh, show off of what we can do and then uh, and then we'll be lighting up for pride um, so this is an example of we'll be able to um, show all the colors of, of pride um, we will be uh, lighting up uh, orange for National um, Truth and Reconciliation Day, mm-hmm. um, you know, m- much, much more to come. And uh, and again, uh, I think um, we're just we're just so excited to be back. And you, you mentioned 651 lights. Uh, just a few other numbers to so you know, mm-hmm. 1,302 um, plates were installed, 11,718 washers, and 7,812 nuts. So, <laughs> so, so this was a, a pretty big effort, and like I said, if you've seen the uh, the high riggers, and, and I really, I really would like, if I can, to do a shout out to EOS uh, Light Media, mm-hmm. INT Electrical, and Hybrid ro- Rope Axis, and then our wonderful IT and infrastructure team, because this is this was a pretty complicated, uh, difficult project. But um, you know, there, there were also, I think. Uh, uh, hundreds of uh, selfies taken by high riggers up on up on the, <laughs> the dome. So it's been really fun to watch. Well, it'll it's going to be great to have Science Roll back again, lighting up the sky here in Vancouver. Six hundred fifty-one LED lights, and and the cool part is, uh, you know, that nonprofits and charities will be be able to illuminate the dome in colors that raise raise awareness for their cause as well. So it's it's all great Absolutely. for the community, and it remains a great place for 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 people of all ages to come and visit. Thank you so much, Tracy. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you, Jazz, and come on down. I definitely will. I promise you that. <laughs> You're just joining us. Uh, we've been talking a lot this hour about uh, the the fire 
Uh, in Maui, uh, 36 people have died, and so far 270 structures. About 11,000 people have um, left the island. We expect another 1,500 passengers uh, to leave the island today. About 600 were staying at the airport uh, overnight. A huge impact, of course, on Maui. Many Canadians visit as well. Evan Harlow knows us very well. He's a realtor based in Maui, and many clients of his are Canadian. Uh, he joins us now. Evan, thank you for speaking to us. Um, it's it's kind of good to be here. Yeah, I, I can imagine with what you're seeing and hearing, uh, for our audience, uh, give me a sense of, of what you're hearing today. Um, you know, the the news today, uh, we've had kind of less coming in as, as it sounds like the fire has uh, been contained. Uh, there hasn't been an official report of it being 100% contained, but the conditions that were pushing it and creating more threat the areas north and south of Lahaina have seemed to have changed. We've got more resources um, fighting the fire, the National Guard, and firefighters that were brought over from Oahu to assist. And uh, the roads still closed, um, and the power is still not um, working for anyone in the area around it. Um, but, I mean, most everything is just everyone's kind of collectively mourning the loss of uh, not just Lahaina Town, but what all the residents and, and locals there um, lost and, and their suffering and just really feeling for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the worst hit area was Lahaina Town? Excuse me? Was what? What is the worst hit area in, in regards to the wildfire? So, yeah, I mean, Lahaina Town is, is part, of, part of what happened, but Lahaina Luna Road is really dense residential area um and that's where a lot of residential destruction happened and a lot of people lost their homes um there are so some neighborhoods and condo complexes and things around lahaina town too but there's really kind of two parts there, up on the hill there's lahaina luna um and a lot of people lost their homes and were displaced and lost um, everything they have up there um and then in lahaina town um beyond the the uh, kind of landmarks that we all know, like the Banyan Tree and, the, um, you know, Lahaina Grill and um, 505 Front Street. Or, um, there's a lot of neighborhoods there where folks lost their homes. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and the area that you're describing, is it mostly uh, the folks that live there, are they Native Hawaiians or are they uh, uh, other Americans uh, that have bought uh, as a, a vacation homes there or Canadians who've owned, owned vacation homes there? It's a, it's, a, it's a relatively diverse place. I don't have any like, actual demographics on that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, um, you know, native local Hawaiian uh, communities there. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a blend of folks because it's, it's a residential area um, with, you know, local families and local businesses mixed into, you know, a lot of tourism, um, condo complexes. And so there are, you know, a, a mixture of, uh, of people affected, mm-hmm. um, but the you know local Hawaiian community will be the hardest hit and need the most support from us right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, do you know? I mean, do you work with Canadians in regards to as a real estate agent? Uh, do you work with Canadians in regards to helping them find uh, homes uh, in the area? Then I I do. Um, I've I've been fortunate to help quite a few Canadians um, in my career. Um, there. Are, 
you know, Canadians have, have always been a very welcome um, group here on Maui. Um, I can say that I have several um, great friends um, that I've met through real estate who are Canadian, specifically from the Vancouver and Whistler area, mm -hmm. um, and also from um, Alberta. Um, that's kind of the two provinces that gravitate to Maui the most. Uh, and um, have they have they have you have you talked to any, or do you know of any that have been impacted uh, by these fires? I, I know I know of one. Um, so typically. Most of our Canadian clients gravitate to South Maui um, as opposed to West Maui. Mm -hmm. um, however, one of my clients did purchase a unit in Lahaina um, at, uh, at Puamana. And um, from the reports and from some visual observation, and this particular property may have been spared, it would appear, though some of the um, rest of the properties were, were destroyed. And were these all new, new properties? Like others, others may have bought, bought there already but perhaps hadn't moved in? Um, so we don't have any new construction in there. Um, you know, these were, these were, that was a vacation rental property. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was oceanfront and that's, uh, th those are kind of a, a landmark in Lahaina itself. They were built in the sixties. Um, and, uh, one of the first, um, communities, uh, you know, kind of, of the new era, uh, in Lahaina of travel and tourism when it was just really starting back in the sixties. Uh, right now, uh, Canadians are being encouraged not to go to Hawaii. Uh, obviously, it's a it's an economy that relies on tourism, uh, and it's had a obviously struggled a little bit during COVID, as many uh, uh, you know economies do, um, because there are tourists mm -hmm. that weren't around. Uh, any sense of how long do you think this will last in regards to encouraging tourists to stay away? You know, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, I think a, a lot of it is you know, obviously with West Maui, uh, what's going on with uh, Lahaina, the road through Lahaina is, is an important access point to the resorts of Kanapali and, and Kapalua. So right now, I mean, access is just completely restricted. So there's no way to get there, essentially. Um, and I think anytime there's an emergency situation like this or a crisis catastrophe, uh, there's a, an extra demand on, on local resources for law enforcement for, you know, um, public safety officials, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, anything, I, I think they're looking at the broader picture of reducing risk everywhere. Um, and I think given the resource distribution, they're, they're, they're hoping that, you know, if, if less people do come, you know, for this interim, this period of time here, uh, that it would be just better all around for everyone. Um, and, you know, I mean, everyone's kind of mourning right now. It feels mm -hmm. like, you know, it feels like we lost, you know, we lost a lot just as a, as a community and as, as, a, as an island. And we, we, you know, everyone who visits here becomes a part of Maui, too, and we really appreciate and feel the support coming from around the world. Evan, I know it's a tough day uh, for all uh, Hawaii residents and, and uh, just wanted to say thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I appreciate you reaching out and letting me you know, share my um, story with you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our next guest is someone I wanted to bring back to the program. Uh, it's in the context of a conversation we uh, had yesterday. Uh, yet we were talking about uh, the uh, expansion of uh, the Trans-Canada Highway all the way out to Chilliwack. It's a region, of course, we know dealing with significant growth. And uh, if anybody's been out there during rush hour, even on a Sunday afternoon, and seeing the, cra- the, the traffic coming into Vancouver, uh, it's bumper to bumper some days, especially on long weekends, and, and you better hope there's no accident either. Uh, but it's a challenge. It speaks to how much of that growth in the lower mainland is moving further and further out to the valley. It is the very nature of uh, of, of um, how Metro Vancouver is expanding. Well, our next guest uh, knows something about uh, transportation and local governance. He was a former uh, mayor of the township of Langley, but he's also president of the South Fraser Community Rail Society. Uh, Rick Green is uh, behind this organization because they are looking to uh, reactivate the existing South of the Fraser Passenger Rail Corridor. Um, This interurban line uh, did operate from 1910 to 1950, and this line runs through Chilliwack, Abbotsford, Langley, all the way out to Surrey. It's about 99 kilometres long, and uh, Mr. Green's organization would love to see uh, it operating once again and moving people all the way out to Surrey to the Scott Road uh, SkyTrain station near the Patullo Bridge. And uh, similar to the West Coast Express, it'd be one more viable way for people to move around in the valley. Rick Green joins us now. Rick, thank you for speaking to us today. Great to be here, Jess. Uh, I wanted to have you back on because we were talking a, a lot about the, just uh, the traffic out in, um, in, uh, in, in, in the valley, especially on Highway 1. So first and foremost, just to touch base here, uh, this interurban line shut down in 1950, so it was around for about 40 years. What would the cost be roughly if we were to, let's say, start it up again today uh, and have it operating roughly? I know it's very hard to put a number on this, but do you have a general sense of what, sense yeah, of what it would cost? It's estimated something around the $1.6, $1.7 billion range, and that would be all-inclusive of rolling stock. And we're talking about a state-of-the-art uh, hydrogen rail uh, uh, passenger unit, mm-hmm. uh, which is operating in Germany throughout Europe. Okay, so it would operate in the morning and afternoon, much like the West Coast Express during rush hour, and people could travel all the way to Chilliwack and then jump on the SkyTrain at the at the Expo line there uh, on the, at the Scott Road station. That would be yeah, the ideal one thing that should be should be pointed out, Jazz, is really quite different than the than the West Coast Express. Mm-hmm. West Coast Express is a commuter rail. This is community rail, um, and this protects all the agricultural land in the valley. But it also hit 16 population centers and and you know post secondary and all the things I've told you about the mm-hmm. the Abbotsford International Airport. Um, it's really important to note that um, back in about 2003 2004. Uh, there's studies done, traffic studies done, 70% of the trips that started south of the river ended north of the river. Today, vastly over 70% start and stop south of the river. So in other words, the, the, the traffic itself is being contained more within the south of the Fraser region than was the case 
two decades ago. Hmm. Yeah, there's an assumption sometimes and when we commute that it's a suburb to downtown Vancouver. Reality is suburb to suburb, and then what you're saying is really south of the Fraser, suburb right. to suburb. Yeah. Um, now, my understanding, there was a 2019 TransLink report that said that uh, this route doesn't connect high-density neighborhoods. And generally for SkyTrain, you need those high-density neighborhoods. Um, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I'm not sure if it comes close to Cloverdale, uh, Walnut Grove and Langley. What do you say to that argument? That like, Look, we have this line, it's great, but it mostly travels to rural areas. It doesn't touch on the fast-growing residential areas. Well, I know, I sat on the Mayor's Transit Council and I know Transit very well and that argument doesn't hold water. Why is that? Um, it's... <laughs> Really, Jazz, we're talking about two different things. TransLink is protecting their, their turf. That's all they're doing. Um, this is what we're talking about is the spine and rib system, the same way that the, the SkyTrain operates in, in Greater Vancouver. Um, the spine is the, is the um, um, is SkyTrain, mm-hmm. and the ribs are the bus service. And they reconfigured all the bus services as you put in a new SkyTrain line. Mm-hmm. All the bus services start to feed into that those hubs, those transit hubs. Now the same thing happens. Uh, it's it's interesting to note um, that uh, we haven't had, uh, we just do not have interregional tra- uh, transit south of the river. Uh, you've got interregional transit north of the river, which only is is a commuter rail. It's not a community rail. Um, so really, you've got 1.2 uh, million people south of the river that are being disenfranchised as far as transit is concerned. Mm-hmm. I could argue the transit thing uh, for the next five hours. Um, I've sat at the table and, and we've argued it. Um, I had the, the former chair of um, uh, Tom Prendergast, who used to be the CEO of Transit back when I was the mayor, mm-hmm. uh, in the early stages. He was um, he's well known as one of the, the uh, very uh, very well known transit uh, specialist, transit expert. We had him out to our boardroom when uh, we uncovered the master agreement and, and did this project. Um, that he was absolutely blown away by it. Uh, he said he wanted to, he wanted to before he was head hunted and head headed back to head up the New York Transit Commission. Mm-hmm. He wanted to put in a demo line uh, between Surrey and Chilliwack. He thought this was a just a great, fabulous idea. Um, we were just talking a little bit about uh, Highway One expansion yesterday uh, with the Chilliwack mayor. A lot of calls as well. Uh, that obviously has to happen. I mean, and, and oh, we, we still need to do that, and I think you'd be supportive of that. Yeah. Can you ever see a SkyTrain, though? I know we're, it's ending up in Langley City, but I've always thought, you know, uh, when you go up 200th Street there by the highway, you've got that large movie theater. I always thought, you know, that's a huge parking lot. Most days is empty. It'd be a great park and ride where at least the people from the valley could drive in, park their vehicle there, and jump on a SkyTrain there just off the highway. Uh, do you ever see any sort of SkyTrain expansion beyond where it's going to end up right now in Langley City? Uh, I don't, uh, Jazz, and I think that um, I have some good uh, vibes from the inside that uh, that uh, those involved don't see SkyTrain moving anywhere past Langley City. Whether it goes down, ultimately down King George Highway, you know, to Newton or whether it hits 200th Street or whatever, mm-hmm. I quite frankly think that you would be far better with a tram train service, um, which is surface rail, mm-hmm. down those corridors to meet up to, which would be, in our in our opinion, a state-of-the-art interurban corridor. Um, the uh, SkyTrain to Langley City, I mean, we're talking $300 million a kilometer. It is gone way beyond our ability to afford. 
There is nobody else in the world that is putting this system in. It is just too expensive. Uh, if you take a look at the expansion to, uh, to Langley City, one of the biggest problems they're going to have, and it goes through the Serpentine Flats, um, we happen to know drillers, former drillers that have, that have uh, drilled in that area. They have to go down. There's already been one test well done or test drill done by TransLink, and they've had to go down four to five hundred feet to hit any kind of bedrock to be able to build those elevated guideways on. That's why the I told in my in our last discussion mm-hmm. that the that the cost is ultimately going to be over five billion dollars, and I'll hold to that. Um, you know, and like to put any money on it. Uh, it's just it is just massively too expensive, mm-hmm. uh, and people you know people get uh, you know spoiled by it and say, well, gee whiz, you know if they've got it, we should have it. Well, you know there comes to the point where you can imagine for five billion dollars how much transit you could put into the in Metro Vancouver region. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Rick Green, president of the South Fraser Community Rail Society, and I might add the former mayor of the township of Langley. Uh, we were talking about a state-of-the-art hydrogen passenger rail, um, uh, you know, traveling along a 99-kilometer publicly owned uh, corridor. Uh, it is part of the interurban system that operated between uh, 1910 to 1950, to my understanding, all the way from Chilliwack uh, to Surrey, um, which I didn't realize existed at that time. So it's a, it's a fabulous part, a piece of history as well, uh, but uh, they would love to start it up again and it would be uh, a cheaper way uh, to add rail, uh, about $1.7 billion, as Rick said uh, in the last segment compared to you know SkyTrain, which we all know is a Cadillac system. It's a great system, but it is a Cadillac system and it costs a lot of money. Uh, let's go to the open line. Uh, I want to hear from you. Do you support something like this? Let's go to Shelley in South Surrey. Hi, Shelley. Hey, Jess. How's it going? It's going very well. What do you think of the idea? Well, anything that gets people out of cars is a great idea for me. Um, I have lived in the Lower Mainland my entire life, and so I'm middle-aged now, and the changes that I've seen have not been for the better. We have visionless grifters that are in charge of this country. Mm -hmm. They are only intent on bringing more people in to exploit for their low... um, for their labor, mm-hmm. not providing enough services for people. Our hospitals are overwhelmed. Our schools are overwhelmed. And we are in a drought situation here, but we were going to bring a million more people a year. So what's the solution? We need to cut back on the amount of people that are coming in so that we can provide for the people that are already here. And absolutely, we need way improved transit. This whole thing that's going out to UBC is absolutely nonsense. It's only to, to fund for the foreign students because that's, that's what's driving our economy now. We need to be building things for the people that are already here. Shelley, thank you very much for your call. I appreciate it. I, I don't know what the transit situation is right now, but I think outside of downtown Vancouver, UBC may be the second uh, most visited uh, location when it comes to commuting every day. Most commu- commuting is still suburb to suburb, but uh, you know I would disagree with you on that. That corridor along Broadway is, is very important. The immigration issue, well, we talk, talk about that a lot, and we will continue to talk about that, I promise you. But, but one thing I would say, immigrants that do come to this country, uh, new Canadians, they rely on transit even more so than the, the, the native-born population. Uh, so transit is very important for all, especially those who come to this country. Uh, let's go to Tim and Langley. Hi, Tim. Hey, Jazz. How you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? 
Good, good. I just happened to be the township councillor that moved the, the notice of motion to support Rick uh, after I met with Rick and his team. Mm-hmm. What convinced you? I mean, because everybody still says, look, uh, SkyTrain, I know it's expensive, but it's a great system when it, it does work. And we should be getting the same system that other other uh, municipalities in, in Vancouver and Burnaby and New West and even Surrey have. Why, why should Langley or uh, Rabbitsford or, or um, Chilliwack be any different? What do you say to that? These are the areas of, of the most rapid growth. Surrey and Township of Langley are two of the fastest growing areas, let alone Chilliwack, Abbotsford, and there is a, a huge deficit of mass transit. And, uh, you know, I've lived south of the Fraser since 1960, and quite frankly, I'm tired of uh, seeing the bulk of resources going north of the Fraser instead of uh, giving us the fair share and, and proper opportunities south of the Fraser. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, you know, we, we've got no land cost with this. It's ready to go. Um, it's in place. And uh, I fully support this. And so does the uh, Township Council. Tim, thank you for your call. Really appreciate it. Rick, we've got about a minute or so. I wanted to say now the, the Township has endorsed this. What happens next now? Well, we're going to, uh, we're obviously communicating with uh, as many councillors and mayors as we can. Um, pushing to uh, support the resolution at UBCM. We really thank uh, Tim and the Township of Langley Council. They've, uh, they've shown a vision for what's needed uh, south of the Fraser, something that's been forgotten about for a long time. Um, and so we're just going to be uh, pushing with the UBCM, the AGM, uh, on the resolution and getting the provincial government support for it. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you on because it is an important conversation. Thank you. Great. Look forward to it. Thanks, All right. Let's get you uh, caught up on the situation in Maui. Uh, the death toll uh, has dramatically increased overnight. Uh, authorities say that the wildfire, wildfire has killed at least 36 people and damaged or destroyed more than 270 structures. Uh, there are a significant amount of evacuations. Well over 11,000 people uh, left the island uh, yesterday. Expect another 1,500 to be leaving uh, today. Uh, Christy Carlson is a BC resident who has been living on, on and off in Maui for the past 21 years. She's presently on Vancouver Island. Uh, her partner uh, is at their home in Maui. Uh, she joins us now. Christy, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Uh, I know a lot must be going through your mind. I know you're here uh, in uh, on Vancouver Island, uh, but what goes through your mind today uh, when, you, when you hear of the stories coming from Maui? Well, Yesterday morning, uh, actually for the last few days, my family and I were camping on Cortez Island. And yesterday morning, I um, felt like I hadn't, you know, been connected online for a while. So I snuck off um, and um, connected somewhere with Wi-Fi and found out about the fire. So I didn't know about it until yesterday morning. And we quickly packed up and, um, you know... uh, came back to Vancouver Island, and I um, came back to Nanaimo, and uh, then was in contact with my boyfriend, who had, the night before, had an evacuation notice. 10,000 Maui residents had evacuation notices, like, get out of your house right away because of the fire, and he somehow gathered our six indoor-outdoor cats uh, into the car, and then opened up the, all the chicken coops and let the chickens free. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then jumped in the car and drove down to um, a safe house, uh, basically a house that three different families with all of their pets and children had rented uh, for evacuation people, evacuees. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, he stayed the night there, and um, uh, he was not sure. uh, By the time I had talked to him, he wasn't sure if our house had burned down. And uh, nobody in there in that house was sure if they were going to their own home, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, we stayed on the phone until the light broke, you know, until dawn came. Um, we're at a three-hour time difference, so he was still in the middle of the night by the time we were talking. And anyway, uh, he drove up the mountain and was crying and was afraid that we didn't have a house. And there it was. It was still there. Um, but a next-door neighbor, uh, the fire somehow stopped, like, at our next-door neighbor's house. It burned um, a friend, a, an acquaintance of ours, Marie, her house to the ground. And then the next house was our next-door neighbor, and that was perfectly intact, as was ours. And it's as though the fire just burned right up a gulch and, you know, uh, burned everything in its path and stopped just abruptly stopped. I have no idea why or how. Um, and so now he's just, he's brought the cats back and they're living in the house and there's lots of smoke damage and the power's out and there's no um, water. But um, that's the least of our worries. Uh, whereabouts in Maui do you live? We live halfway up the volcano at 3,400 feet um, up Haleakala. You know the region well. You've lived there uh, for 21 years on and off. You come back to British Columbia, but most bulk of your time has been in Maui. Um, what Im- Beyond the immediate impact of no power, people losing their homes, uh, give me a sense of what it means for the, the residents there in regards to recovery. And just, uh, you know, this is many historical, uh, historical community has been lost as well. Uh, people personally have been oh. devastated. Give me a sense of what this means for the community moving forward. Okay, so so our area was hit very lightly compared, very very lightly compared to Lahaina. So Lahaina is the historic district, and a lot of tourists who come to Maui would be familiar with Lahaina. It's the closest thing we have to a city city, and it's absolute. It was absolutely gorgeous, most beautiful beautiful place and it has basically been completely burned to the ground there's been 36 deaths it's it's uh it's horrific what's happened there so you're basically talking to a privileged person that you know survived perfectly well and very few of the homes up on my mountain were damaged mm-hmm. but lahaina has been destroyed have, and uh have so, there have there been challenges yeah. with wildfires uh, on maui I, I was saying this earlier, generally when you think of Hawaii, you think volcanoes and tropical storms, uh, but we, you know, and perhaps we haven't seen an, a lot of wildfires out of Hawaii on our newscast. You see a lot more obviously in BC or California, many other parts of the world, um, but they ha- they've been, they've been there and they've been a challenge for, for, for uh, authorities in, in Hawaii. Uh, you know, on such a minor scale, mm-hmm. we have uh, down in the flatlands near Kahului, which is sort of our more industrial urban sort of center where the Costco and the Walmart and all that are, um, that whole flat valley, where you, basically where the airport is, mm-hmm. that whole valley there is very flat and very hot, and the grass is, 
yellow and there's just a lot of plain uh, there. And so sometimes we'll get little fires um, that very quickly get put out. And um, it's not an enormous, it's never been a huge deal. It doesn't destroy property mm-hmm. per se, nor, nor kill animals or uh, people. Uh, ever, as far as uh, as far as I know, mm-hmm. um, this is this is unprecedented. This has never happened. Um, we do, it just doesn't happen. I, I I think that Maui has throughout throughout history, or at least immediate history, um, been so wet. It rains so much of the year, and where most of the um, the homes are are in the wetter areas. Um, the tourist side can be a bit dry, but it's well manned and well maintained. And if there were a, you know, a house that lit on fire, the 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 um, fire department would be there immediately. So, um, yeah, this just hasn't happened. What really happened is that we don't know how the fire was started in Lahaina, but once it got going, we had Hurricane Dora with its incredibly strong winds blowing that fire and just having it spread rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then the embers from that fire were flying all over the island and starting new fires. Uh, my final question... And then the wind would pick those up. Mm-hmm. Uh, my final question to you, uh, right now the governor is asking people to stay away, visitors to stay away from Hawaii. That means canceled vacations and trips. Uh, do you expect that yes. to last for a long time, or do you think this is the, the, that will change very quickly, that people will be welcome back within a week or two? Well, tourism is the main industry on in Hawaii. A week or two? Oh, I would think that that's way too premature. I would say within a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a huge portion of the tourist center that is lost. So, you know, the, the other areas, there's other two, there's two other prime areas that tourists come to, and that's Kihei and Wailea, and so they're just going to have to go there instead of Lahaina. But I would imagine that they're going to restrict people from coming for for a while because, you know, so many people are displaced. There's only so many places for people to, to stay. Well, Christy, uh, first of all, I'm very happy that uh, you didn't lose your home. appreciate you making time for us today as well uh, to share uh, your thoughts on, on uh, where you live on, in Maui most of the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> The Peony is just around the corner, and this year it'll begin on August 19th. Now, it can be argued no single location in Vancouver captures the spirit and history of this city. Since 1910, millions of guests have enjoyed shows, exhibits, sporting events, amusement rides, concerts, and cultural activities every year. And, of course, that includes the Summer Fair. Well, today the PNE is the largest employer of youth in B.C. and the longest-running and best-attended annual ticketed event in B.C. And you could imagine all those amazing concerts. Think back to uh, the Beatles, to the historical uh, Miracle Mile. Uh, there still are every year, I'm always surprised, at the acts that they bring uh, to the PNE. That includes this year as well. Well, back in 1980, Nick Marino was 12 years old. He started working at the PNE and quickly learned that there was more to the fair than winning stuffed animals and eating mini donuts. He shares his stories uh, working six summers at the PNE in a new book called The East Side Story, Growing Up 
at the PNE. He joins us now. Nick, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jess. I was really excited to, to talk to you about this. Um, you know, um, the PNE is so integral uh, to who we are and, and what we are. And we've been debating on whether or not it, we should have a fair, all those types of things. And, and I'll keep the politics out of this because I found your book just really exciting just because of the history uh, of this city. I guess my first question to you as an East fan kid, what motivated you to write about the PNE and your story? Well, I was taking a, a freelance writing course and we had to pitch ideas. Mm-hmm. And I pitched the idea of like when I worked there, it was unlike anywhere I'd worked before. There was a, a lot of uh, a lot of scamming going on. There was a lot of uh, a lot of kids trading rides for hamburgers and, and parking <laughs> for beer and all of this kind of thing. And it just felt like a, a different kind of place than anywhere that I'd worked before. And when I mentioned it to the teacher, um, Jennifer Van Evra, mm-hmm. she said that uh, sounds like a book. And uh, luckily, I was able to pitch it to someone, and and it just, you know, as as I got into it more, I realized it's like it's an integral part of East Vancouver history. Mm-hmm. And like you like you mentioned, 1910, the peony started on the day that my grandma was born. Wow. Um, the the first, you know, in 1910. So so it's, it's like really important, I guess, in my family, the the history of it. Uh, my whole family grew up in East Van, so it just. Uh, you know, it was a cultural hub, right? Everything that happened uh, important in the city, mm-hmm. the BC Lions, the Whitecaps, the Canucks, every concert that came through, like you said, the Miracle Mile, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff was all on the PE grounds mm-hmm. up until Expo 86, and then things started migrating west. So um, when you got the job at the PE, how did that come about? Did somebody recommend that you apply? How did, how did that come about? Well, my brother had been working there, and I think my sister as well, and my dad just took me down and I applied or I just filled something out and I, I got a job blowing up balloons and, and dodging darts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so was it more on the, 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 the Playland side when, where you were working? Um, well, it was only during the fair. Like Playland okay, yeah. is open, I think. Year round. Uh, well, or at least I for think, the summer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was there for the 17 days of the fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what... Your first time when you got hired, was there anything that sort of was seared in your mind, a particular image, uh, a particular moment that you just sort of took you back and go, this this is pretty special. This is a pretty neat place to be working. Um, I think just like being a 12-year-old among all those high school, all those teenagers was super exciting to me. Mm -hmm. I was dying to be a teenager. Being a younger brother, I had looked at my brother's uh, yearbook all the time and I would, you know, like just dream about being in high school. So being around those those kids was exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing adults act unlike I was used to adults acting, like we had this boss who was sort of like he'd walk. He was not just the boss of my game, but sort of the whole all the games. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he was not so like he would be swearing and screaming. And, you know, like I mentioned in the book, he was like nose to nose with people like a like a baseball, someone yelling at a baseball ump. And it was just unlike anything I'd seen before. Mm-hmm. So those kind of images are seared into my mind. Um, my my sixteen year old boss being mad at me and throwing a dart at me and hitting me. I had to raise my arm to block it. And it stuck in my arm. That re- you know that sticks with me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just all those things of like you know sort of the little kid looking in at the big kids. Yeah, yeah. And you were saying that look, uh, you know, the, perhaps the people bent a few bent a few rules when it comes to dealing with customers. Was that a common thing, just in regards to when you were at the fair? Well, uh, yeah, it was when I was there. Um, you know, again, as I said in the book. I'm sure there were some people who weren't taking anything, but I, I didn't meet them. Yeah. You know, um, but it was it was little. It was small potatoes. You know, it was like saying, you know, someone came up to me and said, hey, if you give me some of the prizes from your game, I'll give you 
free a free hamburger. Yeah, you know, it was a bit of an underground economy going on for sure. Yeah, um, you know, when you were growing up uh, in that era of East Vancouver, you mentioned the sports team, the BC Lions, um, Whitecaps, and and the Canucks. What did the the grounds themselves, the physical grounds, mean for for residents? Well, for like, I didn't grow up right next to it, but my mm-hmm. cousins were very close to it and their friends, and we were there all the time. But you know, having interviewed people that did grow up right next to it, they they literally saw it as their as their backyard, mm-hmm. and they just went there and they played there. They checked every door. They would go into the Coliseum and watch the Canucks practice. They would go in after the Whitecaps played, uh, you know, had a practice, and they'd go find those. Remember those old NASL balls that had the stars on them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this guy Dan that I interviewed mentioned finding those in there. They would just they they treated it like it was their backyard, and they had this sort of like local entitlement, like I can do whatever I want here. And I think that spilled over to when they were working there, saying, "Hey, I work at the arcade. Come over and, and you can play a hundred games for free." And then when I see you. You know, you give me something. I've always found it amazing, and maybe the, it, it's different now, but, it, you know, when you finished a, a school, an elementary school, and I grew up in the interior in the Caribou in Williams Lake, that with your report card every year at the end of the school year, you would get tickets to the PNE, which I just, to, even now, I just find those amazing. And it was, for me, my first trip there, I just found the PNE to be fascinating coming out of a small town. But even just getting those tickets in your report card every every June, just a, it was it was an amazing different era, wasn't it? Right, yeah. I mean, for some kids, a report card is bad news, but at least you got those <laughs> P&E tickets in there, right? Yeah. Um, what was East Fan like in, in that era? Uh, you know, cities change and evolve, but I, I'm, growing up, and, and you were mentioning off air, you're, you're in Killarney. What was East Fan like at that time? Well, in a way, it's hard for me to answer because it's it's to me it was normal. That's what what, what it was. Um, I, I guess I would say East Van was you know it was definitely like a, a much more working class area than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a teacher in in East Vancouver now in elementary school, and um, the the families that you see in some schools are what you would have typically seen in the West Side before. But those people are moving more to the East Side. So so East Van was a much more um, working class area I'd say at the time for sure. Is it how has it changed? Has it changed in your mind? I mean, as you said, look, you you know it for what it is. You've been there all your life. Uh, has it changed, and for the better, in your mind? I think it has changed for the better because. I think society has changed for the better. I think if we, you know, it's easy for someone like me, you know, like a, a white male to look back and say oh, it was great then. But, um, you know, I'm, it, it was a very homophobic time. It was a racist time um, in general. I'm not saying just in East Van, but in general. So you go down to East Vancouver. I'm on Commercial Drive a lot now. And it's a, it's a much more inclusive area. So for me, that's always makes it a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, the community itself... Um, you know, when I think of East Vancouver, and I'm not sure it is a look. It's a melting pot, and I'll be the first one to say it's a melting pot. Uh, people of all backgrounds are there, but I've always felt that the there's a strong uh, Italian community uh, in East Vancouver. In many ways, the heartbeat of it. I mean, the Italians live all over British Columbia and Canada, but to me, when I think East Van, I think a very strong Italian community. Um, were you a part of that? Like, did you intermingle within the community a lot? Well. That that Italian strong Italian, Italian community was more like northeast East okay. Vancouver, and I was in the Killarney area. Yeah. So like I didn't play soccer on the Italian team, but you know I knew guys that were on that team, and my, like I say, my cousins lived down there. So I always sort of felt part of it, but it was also a little bit of on the outside looking in because um, people from East Van, 
you know, they tend to to look at it sort of as the boundary as maybe Kingsway or even a little bit further north. Okay. And if you're on the other side of that, they don't really see it. But as I say in the book, like um, Vancouver's always had a strong east-west divide in the city. And anyone that lives on the east side of Main Street knows what side they're on. So, so uh, yeah, and going back to the Italian thing, my family has been in the city for, well, my grandma was born here in 1910. Her, her dad moved to BC in 1890. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's been uh, Italians that I've been related to in the city for years, king in the States. And they were lured away and then used in freak shows. And they were billed as like the sheep-headed man or uh, Martian man, all these kind of like really exploitative kind mm-hmm. of things. And uh, they, they were kept from their parents for like 20 years until their mom uh, tracked them down and was able to get them back. When they came back, they realized that the only way they could really make money was in the freak show. So they went back to the freak show, but this way they had some better terms where they're actually making a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ended up, one of them ended up living to be 108. And he said the only person he ever hated in his life was was this guy that, that kidnapped them. Yeah, there There is some dispute whether his mom might have let them go at first. Yes. But whether she let them go or not, um, they were not allowed to leave. Wow, and uh, so I bring this up because in when they were in their sixties, which would probably have been about nineteen fifty ish, they were performing at the Peony as Eco and Ico, the Sheep Headed Men. Wow, yeah, just a different know. era, different time. Just yeah, completely. I mean, yeah. in a way, freak shows still exist for us, but it's cable TV. You know, uh, sometimes it's like, like <laughs> sometimes it's TV news. <laughs> yeah, even, even some of those like dating shows. I mean, in a way, it's like emotional freak shows. You know, you're yeah. just exposing someone's emotions or something like my 600 pound life. Like, yeah. you know, it's just it's reality TV. Yeah, it really is. Sure. Now, tell me about this. So we got a couple more minutes. Uh, tell me more about the this this issue of the mafia. And the OK, PM. yeah. So it, it just in, in researching this book. I had so many people come to me with stories. I, I almost could have just sat at home and people would have kept coming. So yeah. my daughter came up from work one day and she said, okay, someone from work said you got to interview her landlord. So I went and I interviewed this guy. He's 95 years old. And his story is this. So he was um, born in Poland in 1930 or I guess 28 or something like that. Yeah. His whole family died. Uh, and so he was, it, during, he was Jewish. So during the war... Uh, war years, his whole family died. So he ended up just on the streets. He was part of a pickpocket ring. Uh-huh. He's a little guy, but he was a muscle in the pickpocket ring. Uh-huh. Eventually, he was he came to uh, Canada in Winnipeg. Yeah. And uh, while he was on the streets, he was a street kid. Not like he had a family, but he was a tough kid on the streets. Yeah. He um, he made friends with people in the mafia. Um, and then someone came to him and they said, "Hey, look, I I lent some money to the mafia. I can't pay them back, and now they want to kill me." And he said, and they said, "I know that you know." The mafia, maybe you can help out. So so this guy, Isaac, he helped out. The mafia slowly got paid. This guy didn't get killed. Well, years later, Isaac was um, a carny. Yeah. And he came to Vancouver, and this guy was working at the P&E. And this guy hired him, and he said, you know, because you helped me out when you work at the gambling wheel this, this year for the two weeks of the fair, don't give me the money. You take the money because you saved my life. So every day, instead of handing in the money that he took from the gambling wheel, he'd put it in his pocket and bring it home. And uh, he saved up. I mean, this is a time when when the average Canadian man was making $3,500 a year. Mm-hmm. And he was taking home sometimes $500 a day from wow. the P&E. So he ended, ended up buying a house or, you know, with the money. 
And um, in fact, I was at his house, the same house he still lives in. I was there yesterday dropping off a copy of the book for him. <laughs> so, yeah, I found all these like really crazy stories. You know, obviously that kind of stuff isn't happening now. Yeah. And it's no reflection on the peony now. But 70 years ago, there was, you know, there was some, some shenanigans going on. Well, it's been around since 1910. Many, many stories like that, I am sure. Uh, my guest was Nick Marino. Uh, he's got a new book out, East Side Story, Going Up at the Peony, speaking about his six summers there but also a story about East Vancouver as well. I highly recommend you check it out. Nick, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot for having me, Jazz. I really appreciate it. Many of you who listen to this program know we have a staycation series uh, for this uh, summer. Uh, producers Ryan Lee Hall and uh, Stephen Chang uh, have visited the Stanley, Stanley Park and the Art Gallery because Ryan has never been to those places, even though he was uh, born and raised right here uh, in the Lower Mainland. There's, of course, great places to visit uh, in, in Vancouver. Uh, today, we're joined by our contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson and Talia Miller. Ladies, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Well, now I got to say also, uh, Jerry, we've mentioned this on the program before, mm-hmm. you're the pride of Calgary. You're from Calgary. <laughs> I don't know about the pride of Calgary, <laughs> but I sure am from there. <laughs> well, you are. And to tell you, you're the pride of London, Ontario. We'll go with that. You're going to go with that. Now, both of you, because you're not, you're relative newcomers, right? You're still mm-hmm. visiting the city, vis- vis- visiting landmarks in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're relatively new here. Now, now, where did you guys go? Well, we went to Science World because I've only been the once and Talia has been exactly never, right? Absolutely. Go by it every single day on my commute to work and yeah. back and I've never been in. So you've seen the ball and it's you've heard beautiful. of... You have, and, and we had to stay, uh, Tracy Reddy's on the show earlier today mentioning that uh, they're going to they're gonna light it up again tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, new LED light, so it's going to look great. But you two visited Science World for, for you for the first time. For my first time. And Jerry for the first time. So I'll let you guys explain what you saw. Yeah, totally. I mean, we we did a lot. We did just about, I mean, everything I think that we could have done there, save for taking in a show. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, uh, I will let, I'll let the tape speak for itself. And we are standing outside of Science World on this very gloomy, gloomy, gloomy Vancouver day. What are your visual first impressions of Science World? You know, I've passed by this every single day for two years, so there's a lot of anticipation entering those doors, but I'm very excited. Shall we drag our adult butts inside there? Let's (laughs) freaking go! This is, uh, we're heading into women trailblazing in Canada. There was a science world equivalent in Ontario, right? Yeah, it was called the Ontario Science Center. I'm sure you have the same experience. It was like more biological sciences, chemistry sciences. Absolutely. But we're in like a sort of social science exhibit. So we just made our way through the women trailblazing exhibit. What did you think of your very first exhibit room at Science World? I think this one did a very good job of highlighting some of the issues throughout women's history, but also to issues that we're still facing today. I feel very moved and touched by the things that were highlighted in this exhibit specifically. All right, onward. Now that we kind of went in the shallow end here, let's let's see. We have like a plate spinning sort of zone. Talia is going to attempt to spin a plate. We got some tips from the plate master. This is very sad. Are you watching this? All right, because I couldn't do it, Jerry's gonna try. We're already off to an awful start. So do I 
have it. I didn't have it. We have decided this is best for the kids and we are retreating. What I like about the science world is that this reminds me of the science center of my youth. I honestly agree with that. Like, I feel like I'm eight years old again, just with my grandma and my brother, like running around the science world. Oh, what's that? Now we're up on the second floor with a bunch of fun things to play with. A lot of interactive things here for us. We are the only adult people who are here with un- without children. And, and we're, we're going to have the best time. <laughs> so you can wave your hand over a spot in the floor and make a fart sound. <laughs> they have an instrument here called a wapaphone. It's very Susan. So you like come out of the eureka sort of zone and then there's an interesting segue into body worlds. Mm-hmm. So it's like how high can you jump? You ready? <laughs> yes, I'm so ready. Let's see your vert, Talia. Ooh, hey, with your hand 240. That's amazing. I love that this is a very, very interactive place. A lot of like museums and things that you go to is a lot more just here's a picture board and here's a storyboard and this is what happened and this is very, very interactive. We've done like 20 different activities so far. I mean, yeah, it's geared at the little ones, but it's super, I don't know, it's fun for big people. We're having a blasty blast. Challenging the deep or do we go to the Sarah Stern Gallery? Do you want to challenge the deep? It's like that's like I am the, ready to challenge the deep and let's face my fear of open body waters. Oh, that's right. You're scared of open bodies of water. What's under there, man? You don't. Let's have a look. So this is the feature gallery right now. It just opened up on the 23rd of June, and it's here until January 1st. So get in while you can. The pilot sphere. Oh, that's spooky. Oh yeah, James Cameron went in this thing, and the dimensions are so tiny. And then you are. In there for seven hours. That's a very tiny, tiny sphere. I'm gonna like go in and see. Like if you, if, if you're claustrophobic, this is not for you. Oh, that's a tight fit. Can you imagine doing this for seven hours? Cause I can't. I am scrunched in. My head is almost hitting the top of this. He would have had to be like crunched over. How do you do anything? Like, nope, nope, not for me. It's dark, it's cool, and it's very, it's a little eerie, which I think is on purpose. Totally, because it would be eerie that deep down. The focus is just, like, listen to how the sound changed. (laughs) That was great. Well, we did it. We did your first time at Science World. We did. How was it? Honestly, I really enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun, and it was very interactive and very informative. Um, What was your favorite thing that you learned today? You know what? I really enjoyed learning um, about James Cameron's little submarine. And having to be in there, I can't imagine what that was like for seven hours. I'm glad you I'm glad you had a fun time doing your first science world trip. Now I feel like you can say that you're officially a natural. You've done everything. I've done everything. I'm officially a Vancouverite. Welcome to Vancouver, Talia. I got to say, uh, Talia, uh, during uh, when, when the segment was airing, uh, Jerry showed me a picture of you in that little submarine. That's, <laughs> y- you have to, I'd be claustrophobic. Oh, it was so tiny. And the fact that, that it was just him in there and his things. How would you get anything done? Like you would like cramp up being in that spot for seven hours. 
Oh, it, it was. Yeah, you know? I, I would not. I would. I couldn't do it. I couldn't handle five <laughs> seconds, Jazz. It was. I was like, that's enough. Are you guys doing another one? One more staycation? I do believe we are because somebody has never had a pirate pack from White Spot, and that is essential to that, being here. That is like. I mean, it, it's not a tourist attraction, but it, it's pretty close. I've heard things that I'm very excited to eat at White Spot. Yes, yes. the legendary platter. But yeah, the pirate pack is. Just very similar to that, and you got to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, as an adult, I think you can still order them, so that's great. Oh, perfect, ladies. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. That's our Jeremy Judson and Talia Miller uh, uh, taking part in, uh, in our staycation series. Of course, visiting Science World, and I look forward, look forward for their play-by-play when they have the pirate pack. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.